Hello and welcome again to the weekly Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and with me is Simon Elliott, Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. Well, last week was interesting, Simon, and this week has certainly been interesting. We've been seeing a lot of movement in the opposite direction this week, in an upward direction. So what's been going on? Tell us what's been happening in the markets this week. Well, it has actually been an extraordinary week for investors. The FTSE All Share looks like it'll finish up about 7% or so on the week. It's going to have its best weekly share price return since April. Uh, The investment company sector, not quite as good, but still up probably about 3.5% on the week. And we've seen the sector average discount tighten in, narrow in from about 4.9 to 3.1. And we haven't seen it uh, at such a tight discount level since uh, back in February. And obviously, the news of a potential vaccine from Pfizer and BioNTech that apparently is 90% effective has really moved the dial in terms of markets. But it's not just this week, clearly. It was last week as well. So if you'd uh, invested all your money at the start of November in the FTSE All Show, you'd be up 13% already and probably feeling quite smug. Investment companies aren't lagging behind a little bit so far this month, but still up 7 or 8%. Yes, it has been a remarkable week on many counts. We've had quite a lot of drama here in the UK as well, of course, as well as the ongoing political drama in the United States. There have been a bit of reported turmoil in num- inside number 10 Downing Street, which may or may not foretell some change in strategy and at least uh, outward appearance, the way that the government uh, manages its communications. We'll be interested to see where that works out. Uh, but essentially, the idea that a credible vaccine could be in place next year, and obviously it will take time to be distributed around the whole population, and there might be other vaccines coming along, it's put a kind of end stop to the fear that the economic uh, slowdown that the virus has caused will not persist indefinitely. And as soon as that came into view, we saw a remarkable, um, as you saw, resurgence in general investor spirits. But if we look a bit more closely at the investment trusts which have performed over the last week and the last fortnight, uh, there's some quite striking trends there, aren't they? The numbers are way above the normal kind of things you look, look to see in the winners and losers of the week category, are they not? No, that's absolutely right. So, I mean, we've got a decent number of investment trusts or investment companies that have seen their share prices leap by more than 10% in a single week alone. So, I mean, in some ways, it's, it's kind of the obvious names. We've seen um, uh, investment companies that focus on student property, such as GCP, Student Living, and the Empiric Student Property Fund. They're both up over 20%, 27% in the case of GCP Student Living. And of course, they're intuitively makes sense. Uh, Clearly, that's been a difficult part of the marketplace so far, but clearly now we can see a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, then they're the kind of names benefiting. In terms of the the equity space, um, the UK's had a a good week, actually. I mean, the UK has struggled so far this year, particularly those investment strategies that are kind of more value bias. But again, perhaps unsurprisingly, they're the ones that have done particularly well this week. Aberforth, smaller companies in in the UK small cap area, and then in terms of the kind of larger cap names, Fidelity, Special Values and Temple Bar, both enjoying pretty decent weeks. A share price not too far off, up 20% or so uh, increases on the week. Yes, we've talked a lot about the value growth distinction in the market. And clearly, a lot of value stocks, uh, those with relatively high dividends or low PEs, uh, are the ones which have been most affected by the virus. And uh, while not all value stocks are cyclical, a lot of cyclicals are looking like value stocks at the moment because of what's been happening in the virus and the economy. It's good to see some of these value trusts coming back. They must have been getting a bit alarmed by the relentless uh, rate at which their discounts have been widening and their share prices have been falling. So it's good to see the likes of Temple Bar, as you say, 
and Fidelity Special Values coming back. Well, it'll be interesting to see how long this rally lasts. There's still quite a lot of uncertainty out there, but for the moment, let's enjoy it. Uh, do you normally expect to see from here a typical end-of-year rally? Do you think up to the end of the year you'll find some professional investment managers trying to catch up if they've missed out on uh, things that have been going up a lot? Is that something you might normally expect around this time of year? That's a good question. I mean, December in particular is, is normally a pretty decent month for equity investors. There's a lot of talk about the Santa rally. And though it's not true every year, more times than not, it's surprising how in that kind of Christmas period, particularly into the new year, you do see stock markets creep up. Now, to be fair, that's invariably on the back of lower liquidity for obvious reasons. There's less trade happens as we hit that holiday period. But yes, I mean, it would be nice to think that we do have a bit of a good run now into the end of the year. Well, indeed, let's hope so. There's obviously, of course, still the Brexit hurdle to be overcome in terms of the UK. The deadlines are counting down there. Let's go on and talk about some of the announcements then this week. And of course, with the markets going up, it's not a total surprise to see that there's been uh, some more fundraisings being announced or mooted. But let's first of all start with our corporate activity. And yet again, we'll have to come back to the Gabelli Value Plus Plus Trust. The ongoing saga down at the corral, the shootout, as we've described it. Uh, and there have been yet more things being written, letters being sent, and uh, general positioning being taken ahead of the uh, ahead of the vote on this one. So perhaps you could just give us a quick recap on this one, where we are and what's, what's about to happen. Well, more letters have been written, as you correctly say. Uh, there will be a general meeting on the 7th of December for Cabelli Value Plus Plus, and that was on the back of uh, the requisition from the largest shareholder, Associated Capital Group. Uh, who have a, a connection with the investment manager. And that's the shareholder responsible for, for blocking effectively the, the liquidation motion after this investment trust company failed its continuation vote back in July. But a number of shareholders have put their hands up uh, to support the board. Uh, Investec Wealth and Investment uh, and Close Brothers Asset Management have both written letters in support of the board's efforts. And to be fair, Associated Capital Group have, have responded. So again, there is a standoff here. The board have made it clear, though, that there will be this general meeting on the 7th of December, and that's to consider the resolutions put forward by Associated Capital Group. Now, assuming that those are defeated, the board intends to publish another circular and hold another general meeting, and they're going to put liquidation proposals forward themselves by a special resolution. If they are blocked in turn, then they will look to hold a substantial tender offer. So in other words, try to get some money back to their, their shareholders. So unfortunately, I think this one will run and run for a little bit longer yet. But at least there seems to be something happening in terms of the way in which the shares in Gabay Value Plus Plus are trading. I think the discount's come in a little bit, hasn't it, over the course of the last uh, couple of weeks? Am I right about that? That's right. It's probably trading on a 4% discount or so. So that's a relatively tight level. Just to give that some perspective, over the last 12 months, it's averaged a 10% discount. So certainly a, a, a tighter level than we've seen over the last year. And that might perhaps suggest that we are indeed coming to the end of this uh, long and protracted saga, which has not done a great advert for the way that uh, this particular trust has been uh, disrupted by its largest shareholder. Good for the lawyers, of course, if there are going to be lots of uh, resolutions and circulars going around. Let's move on then to a more happy state of affairs, which is the impending completion of the Perpetual Income and Growth Murray Income merger. There's been some more news on that score this week. Yes, I mean, there is obviously a process uh, involved in merging two investment trust companies. It's not a, uh, an immediate process, and I, but we're nearing the end of that now. The scheme emerges actually effective on the 17th of November. We've already had a vote by shareholders in perpetual income and growth, and 99.5% were in favour. 
It has another hurdle to jump over in terms of the, the Murray income shareholders, but that scheme will be effective within the next week. Can we have any idea of how big the combined entity is going to be? I mean, are they going to lose shells along the way under this process? How does that actually work? Can you give us any guidance on that, Simon? Well, there is a tender offer uh, as part of the arrangement. So I think off the top of my head, it's a 20% tender offer for shareholders in perpetual income and growth. So there will be some, some capital disappear. But even so, putting the two companies together, it's going to be not too far off a billion pounds uh, in terms of assets. So that makes it a pretty decent sized uh, investment trust and certainly one of the largest in that UK equity income peer group. The, the two giants being Finsby Growth and Income and City of London Investment Trust. So it would be a little bit behind those two names, but it will certainly have some clear blue water uh, versus the rest. OK, splendid. Well, on the subject of corporate uh, developments and shareholder votes and so on, we might just record a slight uh, little hitch at Strategic Equity Capital, that's SEC. What can you tell us about that? So they had their AGM uh, this week, and uh, although all the resolutions put forward to shareholders were passed, they had a significant minority of shares voted against their uh, annual continuation vote. About 19% of the shares that were voted opposed that continuation vote. And in addition to that, we saw the re-election of the the chairman and the deputy chairman, uh, Richard Hills and Richard Locke, the two Richards, uh, they saw 14 and 13% of the shares uh, voted against them respectively. So that's a little bit of a, a yellow card, I think, and the, the board acknowledged the votes and noted that the chairman had actually recently met with some of the major shareholders. But I think we can infer from that that clearly there is a significant uh, number of people on the shareholder register not happy with uh, the way that this particular investment trust has been performing. It's had a tough year. It's share price down 17% so far year to date, which is obviously an underperform of the all share and, and, the, and the small cap index. We've seen a change of management recently. Ken Wooten was appointed uh, the investment manager at the end of September and Jeff Harris has left the team. So clearly the shareholders are not entirely happy with the direction of travel. Right. So we might expect to see some more news from that source in due course as that one plays out. Let's move on to fundraising. As I said, there's some more trust coming out of the woodwork in terms of raising money either through uh, IPO or secondary issuance. As we've talked about uh, Murray Income, why don't we talk about another UK trust, a BlackRock's Frogmorton Trust, another large trust, well-known, been performing very well. What's the news from them? BlackRock Throgmorton Trust came out this week. Um, basically, the board is considering uh, an equity issuance. So um, I think we talked about this before in previous podcasts that um, investment trusts have to have permission from shareholders to issue shares effectively. It's to do with preemption rights. So in the case of Frogmorton Trust or BlackRock Frogmorton Trust, it has been um, a very, very successful investment trust. It's traded consistently on a premium, which has allowed it to issue quite a lot of shares. Actually, over 11 million shares have been issued over the past 12 months. So it's coming to the end of its scope in terms of its 10% of its issued share capital that's allowed to issue at any one time. So they're looking to kind of effectively to renew that power to be granted authority to allow it to issue another 10%. So it's a sign of its success, but it is important that um, the board do attempt to get these powers. The alternative is that you can get a, a real squeeze in the share price of investment trust where there is issuance is not freely available. And I think we've talked in previous weeks about um, a couple of the Bailey Gifford names, Pacific Horizon, actually Bailey Gifford China Growth, where their issuance powers were either all used up or coming to the end. And it created a real squeeze in terms of their premium ratings. Yes. And that, uh, I think, as we discussed, the general meeting of Bailey Gifford China Growth is coming up uh, on the 26th of November. And 
they will be looking, as you said, to renew their shareholders' authority. Can you just remind us, Simon, I mean, 10% or 20%, what is the kind of typical level that uh, investment trusts look for in terms of the ability to issue new shares over the course of, of a year from one AGM to the next? What's the sort of typical range? Is there, can we say there is such a thing? It is either invariably 10% or 20%. 10%, I would say, is more common. And, you know, for a lot of investment trust companies, that, that's plenty. I mean, obviously, uh, probably the majority of investment trust companies don't issue shares in any given year. But for those that have seen exceptional demand, and uh, Belly Gifford, China Grove would be the obvious case in point where there's been a change of manager, China's come back into favour, uh, and those shares really seen very, very strong demand, particularly from retail investors, um, then it makes sense, in my opinion, to go for the, the extra issuance powers. So they're going for a 20% of issued share capital, uh, and that really does make sense. Let's move on then to another one we mentioned before. Uh, an IPO that is still ongoing or intention to be ongoing anyway, if they can raise the money, and that is Schroeder British Opportunities. We know that there have been a, a couple of investment trusts that have failed to raise their fundraising targets, but uh, this one is still in the game. What's the story there? Yes, absolutely. They're looking to raise up to £250 million. Um, The placing will close on the 26th of November, uh, and the intention is that this uh, investment trust company begins to trade on the 1st of December. Uh, so just to remind people, this will be invested in, as the name would suggest, UK companies or British companies. But it's a, effectively it's like going to be a hybrid uh, investment trust and invest in both private and publicly listed companies and probably a rough 50-50 split. Very much at the kind of mid and small cap end. So the, the market caps that they're targeting will be between 50 million and, and 2 billion. And they're looking to generate NAV total returns over a fixed seven year life of 10% per annum. So, yes, they presented this week Rory Bateman, who's the head of equities at Schroeder's, and Tim Creed, who's the head of the UK and European private equity team there, presented on, on the idea and, and talked very passionately about the opportunity they believe exists, the idea that they wanted to kind of back British businesses, that, that perhaps those that had too much debt on their balance sheet and really encourage them to go out and raise new capital, raise new equity uh, being the key point. So we'll see how that goes. The minimum size that they could actually get this away is 75 million, uh, according to Rory Bateman. So we'll see over the next week or two how this one develops. Yes, well, it's interesting, given how well the UK market has done, whether those other investment trusts that uh, tried to raise money only a few weeks ago but failed, they might uh, be wishing they were still in the game as well, given that there presumably is more demand for UK uh, investments at the moment. Will that one be listed in the growth capital sector, do you think? Which you might explain what that is, and that's a relatively new sector, AIC sector. Is that likely to be the one where this, this trust will, will go? That's a very good question, actually. So, yes, the growth capital uh, subsector, just to remind people, that's not exclusively, but invariably has underlying private companies in those various portfolios. Uh, so it's actually the Australia UK Public Private Fund and uh, the Merriam Chrysalis and the Shehalian Fund, the Baby Gifford Fund in that subsector. I don't know is the answer to your question. I mean, clearly, in, in this case, they could probably make a good case to be in UK small cap or indeed the growth capital sector. No doubt they will have an opinion on it and they will make representation to the AIC Stats Committee. We've talked about that august body before uh, and uh, decisions will be made in due course. How far does it actually make a difference which sector you're in? I mean, it's obviously convenient and helpful to investors for the AIC to categorise uh, trusts in their broad categories, but... Uh, do you think it actually would make a difference to how this one would trade, whether it was in the growth capital sector or whether it was in uh, a conventional equity sector? What do you think? Do you have any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, it's a good question. I think initially it doesn't have a, a great impact. I think it becomes more pertinent when it, it's you know been up and running for a number of years and people start comparing how it's performing versus its peers as defined by the, by the industry. Um, and I think that's the point. So who is it best to measure it against? Is it best to measure it against things like Marion Chrysalis or Shannon Fund, which are doing very different things? Or is it best to measure it against some of the names in the UK small cap sector? Again, there's a, a range of uh, strategies and uh, underlying market cap size companies. But I, I think if I had a preference at this stage, it would, it would make more sense for me to put it in the UK small cap because some of the uh, investment trusts that you find there are absolutely investing in the, in the same area, albeit not with the, with the private companies in their portfolio. Okay, so we'll find out about that soon enough. We do know that you are on that committee, Simon, so I presume you'll have your say on that at some point, but along with the other distinguished members of that committee. Let's move on then to JP Morgan, Global Core Real Assets. I think we mentioned this in the past. JP Morgan are well known for their expertise in uh, what, what's called real assets, uh, but perhaps you can tell us what they're proposing to do and how they're defining real assets. What do, what do we mean by real assets? Well, what they're proposing to do is they have announced that they intend to launch a C-share and in addition to that, they'll look to do a 12-month issuance programme. Um, and they're looking to raise £80 million. So it's an interesting development for this one. I mean, this launched not that long ago, September last year, September 2019, they raised £149 million, uh, which I think was a good result at that particular junction for, a, for an IPO. And effectively, this investment trust, this investment company, gives access to, as you say, JP Morgan's Asset management's uh, incredible program of different assets. So they talk about global real estate, global infrastructure, global transport. They've also got some liquid real assets there. So it's a whole range of different asset classes. And the idea is that it generates a yield of between 4 and 6% uh, once it's fully invested, which, uh, to be fair, it just about is at the moment. And over the long-term target, a total return of between 7 and 9%. So it's a very important mandate for, for JP Morgan as a, as a business. Clearly, they're a huge uh, global group, and this investment trust gives access to those different strategies. The ordinary shares, that, as I say, have been up and running now since September last year, trading on a premium at the moment, probably about 8% or so to their NAV. So, And it has consistently traded well. It had a bit of a blip back in March, when obviously all the markets went south at that stage. But over its life, it has traded well. Just a, a sort of general question. Why would I want to invest in an investment trust that's investing in a whole range of real assets, by which presumably that means a real asset is typically described as one which has some kind of built-in ability to produce better-than-inflation returns. But that could include infrastructure, it could include some debt, it could do all sorts of things, could it not? Who do you think the market for this particular investment trust will be and who would it be competing against? So I think the market is for investors looking for consistent uh, low volatility type returns. Obviously, the yield is an important part of that story, that that 4 to 6% yield once fully invested. It's a, going to be a hugely diversified portfolio once fully invested. So, you know, again, a whole range of different asset classes that you would expect to give all-weather returns. Um, in terms of who it's competing with, it sits within the flexible investments uh, peer group, I mean, there are a number of multi-asset strategies uh, type funds there. I mean, the, the obvious names, I think you'd probably put it alongside of something like the Aberdeen Diversified Income Growth Fund. I think we've talked about that in, in recent weeks. They're a fund that's struggled a little bit this year to date, and there's been a change of manager there. But they are moving towards more kind of private markets in terms of the underlying assets they want in that vehicle. Um, and they also offer a yield of about 6%. So that's, again, once JARA, as the JP Morgan Fund is known, fully invested it's going to be quite a comparable yield. But um, 
as I say, for, for people who want that kind of low volatility, a consistent return type product, that's that's clearly where they've positioned this vehicle. So if we could put it one way, it puts a bit of ballast into your portfolio. If you like, a, as you say, relatively low volatility and hopefully uh, consistent positive real returns, which is what everybody thinks they can get, but very rarely, certainly in the hedge fund space, you see it's quite difficult to actually achieve that consistently over time. But they are one of the leaders in that particular field. So that will be an interesting one to watch. Let's quickly pick up on Gresham House Energy Storage. Tell us something about that. We know energy storage is a interesting area at the moment. It's one of a number of areas which is getting a, a bit of traction because of its uh, good environmental credentials, if you like. Can you tell us something about that? Yeah, so they told us this week that they are looking to put in place a 12-month uh, placing program. That'll be up to 250 million shares, but they're going to have an initial placing as part of that at a share price of 105p, uh, which was a slight or is a slight discount to the closing share price before the announcement was made, uh, though still a premium to their latest NAV. So they've got a pipeline of five assets lined up, ready to go, which are valued around about £200 million. So obviously this fundraising will go um, hopefully for them, for, as far as they're concerned, a, a long way to, to fund that. And they believe that this new pipeline can be uh, very accretive to the, the existing portfolio. Um, so it's one that's traded quite well. It, it has consistently been on a premium, probably about 9-10% over the last 12 months. Uh, and as you say, uh, energy storage is, is a kind of subsector of the marketplace where uh, a lot of people are getting quite interested. I mean, the argument, I think, is, is that essentially you're uh, storing energy, obviously, as the name implies, and that allows uh, less wasteful use of energy and therefore fits in with a lot of governmental and other targets for energy use and indeed environmental positivity. So let's move on. We've got to talk about music royalties, of course. Never a week passes without us talking about that, or very rarely it seems to do. Uh, last week we heard from Hypnosis again, but this week we have got news that the other trust we mentioned, which was coming in as a sort of competitor to Hypnosis, it's this Round Hill Music Royalty Fund, they had an IPO, and how successful were they? They were successful. They managed to to get the IPO away, which is the main thing at the end of the day. They were looking to raise up to about three hundred and seventy-five million US dollars. They actually came in at two hundred eighty-two million US dollars, um, which I, I think is still a very fine effort uh, given what we've seen this year. This is only the fourth IPO the investment company sector has seen all year. There were, there were a couple more uh, on the back burner. Um, but yeah, hopefully they will be happy with that as a result. Uh, it kind of gets them up and running. It's a, it's obviously a very interesting portfolio of, that they've put together in terms of the names, the catalogues, the Beatles, the Running Stones, Elvis Presley, and the Backstreet Boys. So something for everyone. Uh, a total return of, of between 9 and 11% and a dividend yield of 4.5%. That's the target. We talked last week how M&G became a cornerstone investor. So the fourth IPO of the year and possibly not the last. Uh, just a small point there. The shares are due to be admitted to trading on the specialist fund segment. We've talked about that before, but can you just briefly remind us what the specialist fund segment is? Why, what do you have to do to get into that particular category? Yeah, so it's part of the London Stock Exchange. It's, as the name would suggest, it is for funds. It's for more specialist funds. And there are various kind of rules that make it slightly easier, I think it's fair to say, for uh, investment companies to launch through that segment of the marketplace to list on the main market. There are slightly more onerous considerations that sometimes don't uh, suit all investment companies, particularly when they first come to the marketplace. So this is a way of allowing them to start trading uh, when perhaps they don't tick every single box. 
Well, you won't be surprised to know that there was another response from uh, hypnosis this week. They've actually added to their catalogue again as well. Is that right? Indeed, yep. They've made another acquisition. Uh, I think it's a 50% share of the catalogue of a gentleman called Rick James, who is a Grammy award-winning songwriter and record producer. Uh, I must admit, I hadn't heard of him. I'm sure you, you're very familiar with his work. He sadly is no longer with us, I understand. But he's probably best known, apparently, for his track Super Freak, which uh, MC Hammer sampled with You Can't Touch This. But uh, yes, Hypnosis rolls on. Very happy to uh, keep acquiring new catalogues. And they, they, they made it clear that that was acquired using the proceeds from the, the C-Share fundraising back in July. OK, well, that's interesting. How are the shares doing there? Will they uh, Are they still trading at a premium, presumably? It's very slight premium at the moment. I've got literally about 0.3% at the close of Thursday. Well, it will be interesting to see how uh, Roundhill Music Royalty Fund trades as well, because that will then give us some kind of read across about which of those two is doing better. But it's always good to hear from them, and I'm sure we'll be hearing from them both on a regular basis in the future. Let's move on to some results now. There's some interesting uh, developments there. Let's start off by talking about AVI Global Trust. Uh, that used to be known as something else, different in the past. Uh, I'm sure you can remind us about that, Simon. But uh, tell us what they've had to say in their annual results. So AVI Global Trust used to be known as the British Empire Trust before changing the name a few years ago. Now, they had their annual results out to the end of September. Their NAV total return was actually flat during that 12-month period, compared with a fall of about 2% or so for their comparator index, which is the MSCI or Country World X US index. Funnily enough, they were quite pleased uh, with those results. I think not least because actually in the first half of the year, their NED was down about 25% or so. So um, again, the two halves, and they certainly performed well in the second half of that 12-month period. They've maintained their dividend at 16.5p, despite a 51% fall in their revenue earnings. So they're obviously using revenue reserves to prop that up. And actually, the share price, to be fair, was up uh, 2% in the period. But just to remind people, it's a very interesting investment approach, very specialised uh, investment approach. They they look to buy out of favour companies and with assets that are misunderstood that trade below uh, intrinsic value. So they're really focused at the moment, at least on three distinct areas: uh, Japanese special situations, um, which they've done now for a few years, and, and that's been with good effect. They've had some success there. Uh, they invest in investment companies, closing funds. So one of their best holdings in this particular period was Pershing Square Holdings, and also family holding companies as well. And really, they, they like to, um, and in fact, the disclosure they had in these annual results, they look through these holding companies and the investment trust companies and look through the underlying holdings. And they're very much about the high quality assets that they believe they can get hold of uh, at attractive discounts. The management fee was also reduced as well, but only on assets above uh, a billion pounds, so reduced to 0.6%. Listeners will be aware of the reasons why they may have changed their name from British Empire Trust. It's not the kind of thing you like to have on your calling cards uh, these days. Just tell us something about the history of how the shares perform and, and where they sit, which sector they're in and uh, how they've been uh, trading. Have they been benefiting from this week's market movements at all? So AVI Global Trust sits in the, in the global peer group, so alongside people like Alliance Trust and Scottish Mortgage and FMC Investment Trust. They're trading on probably about a 10% discount or so at the moment, uh, and that's broadly in line with the pattern that we've seen over the last 12 months. In terms of their NEV total return performance, they're up about 85% over the last five years. That's probably slightly behind the FTSE world, but then 
um, that will be a reflection of the fact that they'll be very underweight, the US, and, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, that comparator index actually excludes the US. So that's not really their kind of natural hunting ground. So uh, as we've discussed before, growth versus value, and clearly it's been a year for growth, and it's probably been the last four or five years have all been about growth investment, though they have a very specialist uh, investment approach, and I wouldn't necessarily describe them as, as just value players, but clearly value is an important part of their investment approach in terms of looking at assets on attractive discounts. So unlikely to keep up with the out-and-out growth investors. But you know, to your point, yes, uh, over the last um, month or two, uh, and even this week, actually, they've probably benefited from the slight rotation in the marketplace. Okay, let's move on to another company publishing uh, its annual results, and that is Schroeder Oriental Income, SOI, uh, which we've mentioned in the past because the long-serving manager, Matthew Dobbs, is retiring at the end of the year, I think. So uh, what's been the story there? How is his uh, final year going to look? Yes, not not a golden one, unfortunately, for Matthew. They had uh, annual results up to the end of August. NAD was down slightly about 1% or so, and that compared with an increase of 9% for their benchmark MSCI or countries Pacific X Japan index. Probably not a great surprise, to be perfectly honest. Uh, the underperformance, as the name would suggest, Oriental Income, they're very much looking for income or uh, you know dividend-paying companies. Apparently, two-thirds of the shortfall in terms of the performance was a result of not owning Tencent and Alibaba, and clearly the lower yielding, but the higher growth stocks are not the natural hunting ground of this particular investment trust. But uh, over the long term, it will have performed well. Uh, Matthew, as you mentioned, uh, is retiring at the end of this year. He launched this investment trust company back in 2005. And the dividend, which is obviously a big part of the story, they've actually increased the dividend this year. It's up 2%. And they've actually used a little bit of revenue reserves just to help them out in order to do that. So I mean, that was uh, one of the first that got into this trend of suggesting that Asia might be a good source of income. It never historically was seen as much of a good place to go if you're looking for income. But the argument being that because the Asian economies are growing much faster than other countries, they have the ability and increasingly are paying dividends. So he was one of the pioneers in that particular approach, I think. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, Matthew, I think, is a very well-respected and clearly very experienced investor. He had the advantage, and I think it was a clear advantage, of being involved in this, so an equity income type strategy for Asia, and also investing for Asian growth with his, with his other vehicle, the Schroeder Asia Pacific Investment Trust. So he had two horses in the race, and uh, I think that gave him quite an interesting perspective of what was going on in the region. Well, while we're here, we might just quickly pick up. We had a request from a listener to tell us something about another trust that uh, operates in the emerging markets uh, sector, and that is something called Scott Gems. The listener appeared rather disappointed with the way that things are developing there. Uh, can you quickly give us an update on what's been happening with Scott Gems? Well, tell us who they are, first of all, and why they uh, may be the object of some disappointment at the moment. Okay, so Scott Gems, basically, is a relatively small investment trust company, probably a market cap of uh, $35 million or so. Uh, it's in the global small cap sector, though it does have an uh, emphasis on Asia and emerging markets. And it's fair to say, unfortunately, the performance hasn't been entirely sparkling. In any of the total return, they're probably down about 17% uh, over the last three years. And in share price terms, that's actually a negative performance of 33%. So it's one that's not been particularly strongly performing. Uh, and actually, we've seen it derated as well. So it's out on about an 18% discount. So it feels a little bit too small for a lot of investors to look at it. And certainly in performance terms, it's not uh, been doing a huge amount to attract investor interest. In terms of the, the approach, it is an interesting approach. 
I mean, it's there's certainly a kind of value bias to how they select the, the companies in the portfolio. Uh, as discussed uh, how many times before, that's probably not been massively helpful uh, in recent years. But it, again, it's quite a, a specialist uh, investment vehicle that unfortunately hasn't really uh, delivered in terms of its performance to date. I mean, the fund management group uh, is an outfit called Stuart Investors or Investment Management based in Edinburgh, I think. But I noticed there's a couple of uh, interesting names on the board there, including Angus Tullock, who's a well-known uh, Scottish investor and a fund manager who'd been very successful for many years and uh, recently retired and I think had some connection with Stuart Investors. But uh, yeah, I'd be interested to see what they do, whether they come up with some kind of proposal to try and improve performance or whether they just sort of chug along and see, uh, as you say, it's unlikely they can attract much demand at the moment. If they're that size, they're not going to attract big institutional support. So I guess it's one to keep on the watch list. And uh, at some point, maybe the board will be moved to respond to the dissatisfaction of uh, at least the shareholder who contacted us. And I dare say there are one or two others who would uh, have been disappointed by the performance, particularly at a time when, as you said before, emerging markets are generating uh, some quite good returns and uh, a lot of uh, excitement from other management groups. No, you're absolutely right to mention Angus Tullock. I mean, he owns 7%, uh, according to Bloomberg, of the of the shares in issue. And it is a little bit friends and family. Stuart Investors owns about 9% as well. They've got 5 million shares of the shares in issue. But I think your conclusion is right. It's one at the moment that's it's probably disappearing off most people's radars. Let's move on and talk about some other specialist trusts which have had results this week. These are all interim results, so we perhaps don't need to give them quite so much attention. But it's always interesting to spot the trends here. So let's kick off with one of the biggies, that's 3i. We've talked about them before. They're now very different to what they used to be many years ago. They now have a slightly different strategy to the ones that they were known for when they were started. Uh, but what's the story of 3i? Yep, so 3i had its interim results out to the end of September. A decent set of results, actually. A 15% return on shareholders' fund with an NAV of uh, 905p. So really the results or the returns driven by the private equity portfolio and the largest holding, in fact, um, probably equates to about 49% of 3i's NEV now is a company called Action, which is a non-food discount store, a pan-European company, which has just seen incredible growth now over a number of years. And despite the fact clearly we've seen lockdowns uh, and disruption across Europe, it's still progressing very, very well. And uh, in fact, they're, they're talking about opening 160 new stores this year alone and 300 stores in 2021. So although it's not a name that's familiar in the UK marketplace, moving across Europe, including Eastern Europe, it's a company that's doing very well. And aside from that, actually, they've got uh, other key holdings, infrastructure. They've got a very large stake in 3i infrastructure, the, the investment company uh, that continues to perform well for them. So 3i trading on uh, quite a big premium. I think we'll be feeling quite happy with how they're performing at the moment. Well, while we're on them, we might just mention the 3i infrastructure also produces results uh, at the same time. Did they do better or worse than the, than 3i as a whole? They will have done worse than 3i as a, as a whole. I mean, 3i group will be um, benefited hugely by the value of action. But 3i infrastructure is obviously a very different kind of risk return type profile. I mean, they had a 4% total return in their six-month period to the end of September. Overall, um, it was a reasonable set of results. They declared an interim dividend of 49 P and they're on track for a 9.8p total dividend for the 12 months to the end of March 2021. So that's up 6.5%. And obviously the yield or the dividend is a key part of 3i's story. There's a couple of problem children in the portfolio. It was ever thus, but they've got a company called TCR, which leases ground equipment or ground support equipment to the airline industry, which has clearly not been a great place to be this year. 
So they've written the value of that down, but um, I think they're still hopeful that that will bounce back on, on a long-term view. Okay, so we'll move on and talk about another interim results from Capital Gearing Trust. This is a trust that also is in the flexible investment sector and therefore would be, I guess, a competitor to the JP Morgan Real Assets Trust in one sense. They're a very different animal. What can you tell us about their performance? So they had interim results for the six months to the 5th of October. They had a very strong period, actually. Their NAV total return was just short of 10% uh, in that time. And a whole range of different holdings performed very well for them, including Pershing Square Holdings that they hold in common with the AVI Global Fund. But uh, just to remind people, they, they look to preserve shareholder wealth and achieve real returns. So they've got about 40% or so in risk assets, 30% in index-linked bonds, and, and 30% in what they call their dry powder. So they managed to increase their weight into index-linked bonds to about 30% or so in, in the period and extended the duration out. But all in all, um, up 10% in a six-month period is a, is a good return for Capital Gearing Trust. And they not only uh, run their own uh, zero discount policy, but they tend to be uh, proselytes for that particular cause. They go around to encouraging other trusts to introduce discount control mechanisms. Uh, and it's been pretty effective, I think, has it not, in the last few years? I think we've talked about this before. They've been able to sustain their rating around the zero level and indeed been able to issue quite a lot of shares as a result, as you mentioned, and been growing the size of the trust uh, quite significantly, in fact, over the last, what, five years or so? Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, at one stage, it was a sub £100 million. It was a little bit family and friends, probably off the beaten track, actually trading on a very big premium to the NAV. But as you correctly say, they adopted a zero discount policy. They brought the investment trust company into the kind of mainstream uh, and they've seen huge demand for their shares. So their market cap now is probably not too far off £600 million or so. But yeah, substantial growth. So even in this six-month period, um, they issued shares worth about £32 million, new shares, and actually issued a, a few more from Treasury as well. And they have been consistent in that zero discount policy, so it has worked for them very well. And for those who value experience in their investment managers, it's worth pointing out that I think Peter Spiller, who's been managing that trust since uh, the early 1980s, has become the longest serving investment manager in the UK investment trust sector. I only know that because I've put together a table in the next edition of the Investors Trust Handbook, which is coming out in December, and he is there at the top of the list now. So uh, well done to him. If you value experience, uh, he's the man to go to. He's a very interesting uh, gentleman, and he talks very uh, wisely about uh, the ups and downs of the investing in stock market over long periods of time. Uh, Well worth reading some of his commentary if you get a chance. Uh, Let's move on to uh, HG Capital Trust, a private equity trust, uh, who also had some uh, latest update, this time a quarterly update, I think. That's right. So the three-month period to the end of September. Uh, Again, this is an investment trust company that's performing very well this year. They're up 12% in that Q3 period. This is in NEV terms. And actually, the NEV is up nearly 20% in the first nine months of the year. So a private equity fund, but one that's really focused on technology companies. I think they call it business critical and non-discretionary software and services. So it's it's tech. It's very much where the, the market is at the moment. But yeah, a decent uh, period. They've seen realizations and refinancings, probably generating returns about 470 million so far this year. Uh, and they've also made new investments of about 410 million. So despite the fact, I think we were very fearful back in March, April, that'd be a really tough year for, for private equity. And to be fair, it has for some names. And clearly there are others in HD Capital in this category that have really pushed on very well this year. Yeah, so I think it's fair to say that 3i, who we just mentioned, and uh, HG Capital Trust are about the only two, I think, in the sector who are actually trading uh, at a premium or at least around par. 
whereas many of those are still trading at uh, quite significant discounts of 20% or more. So let's move on while we're on infrastructure, very much uh, a flavour of the year type sector. Uh, we didn't mention earlier on there are a couple of IPOs being uh, launched in this sector, or at least uh, being attempted to be launched in this sector. We're not going to talk about them this week, but we may come back and discuss that next week. Let's talk about one that is already in existence, though, and that is Sequoia Economic Infrastructure, S-E-Q-I, trading at a premium. And what's their story? Yep, so they gave uh, an, an updated NAV at the end of October. It was up slightly uh, on the month uh, as a result of uh, interest income. Uh, and a bit of currency went in their favour. A little bit of uh, asset valuation decline uh, due to certain private loans, uh, and that was a result of some of the borrowers uh, facing challenges associated with uh, COVID-19. But then they had some gains on some of their assets in the telecom sector that performed better. So they're sitting on, on a bit of cash at the moment, probably about $117 million or so, and uh, they've also got a few undrawn commitments. But the portfolio yield to maturity was just short of 10%, while the cash yield was 6%. But probably more importantly, as far as shareholders are concerned, is the annual dividend is expected to be fully cash covered. Indeed. And that's one of the key attractions of those infrastructure funds, as we've discussed many times. Let's quickly pick up then on those people who are interested in solar energy. We talked about uh, energy storage, about batteries and such like. But here we are, the solar sector. So I haven't seen much sun down my way this week, but uh, let's see how they've been doing. We've talked about the fact that they are like the Wind trusts, they are subject to the vagaries of the of the climate. But uh, what's been their story? They've both given us some updates this week. That's right. So Foresight Solar Fund had an NAV out at the end of September. That was down just slightly from the end of June, largely due to the minimal movement in the power price. But probably more importantly is that the generation in the UK portfolio is 10% above forecast for the nine months to the end of September, reflecting higher radiation levels and robust performance ratios. So effectively, it's been pretty sunny uh, in the UK, or it certainly was for the first nine months or so of the year. So that's positive. They've reaffirmed their dividend target at 6.91p. Um, so again, a very important part of, of the story. And they've also made an acquisition of their first unsubsidized uh, solar project in Spain, which was completed back in September. It should be operational in the third quarter of next year. Right. Well, it's interesting, is it not? But the solar funds haven't been doing quite so well in terms of the market. In terms of their results, they've obviously had a bit of sun to, to benefit from, but uh, they're not uh, performing quite as well as some of the other renewable energy trusts. Um, is, is that right? Is that a fair comment? I've been looking at their sort of one-year total returns. They seem to be basically down a little bit or, or up a little bit, but not as doing as well as some of the others. Yeah, so looking at the renewable energy space, probably over the last 12 months or so, the best performer would be the Gore Street Energy Storage Fund. So we talked about energy storage. That's been the one that's had a little bit of traction in terms of its share price, though. To be fair, that's a smaller fund. It's got a market cap of, of less than 100 million. Greencoat UK Wind, that's arguably one of the flagship funds in the sector, probably off a little bit about 4% or so over the last 12 months. And then the Renewables Infrastructure Group, again, one of the large funds with a market cap of over 2 billion. They've fared a little bit better. Their, their share price to return is over 10%. I mean, again, when you look at the renewable energy infrastructure sector, it's worth bearing in mind that as a body, they do tend to be quite good at raising uh, new monies. And every time they do that, it's invariably at a bit of a discount to, to their share price. So you can see, depending where you measure performance, you can see an impact on performance numbers, just depending on, on the impact of that fundraising and what it does to their premium rating. 
indeed and uh, at the moment they've got slightly higher yields than the others as well so it's, it's all kind of comes out in the wash to some extent okay interesting to watch that there's obviously some big strategic questions about how much renewable energy uh, trusts can be launched and maintain their record going into the future as the number of subsidized projects declines or government-backed projects declines We'll have to see about that. Okay, so finally we got a few uh, property trusts. We skimmed over the results of some last week. But um, have the property commercial property trusts been benefiting from the market this week? Have they showed some sort of improvement in their ratings? Can you tell us something about that in a moment, Simon? But perhaps we could go through the results, first of all, that we've had. Yep, so we had from Picton Property Income. Uh, they had their interim results out to the end of September. Um, their NAV per share was actually flat, but they had an NAV total return in positive territory. It was up about 1%. So the, the kind of good news as far as shareholders are concerned is that the, the dividend cover was 148%, albeit that dividend remains below the pre-pandemic level. So this comes back to, I think, something we talked about in previous weeks, of the idea, should these property companies be looking to increase their dividends back up or given the, the second lockdown still uncertainty, are they best to kind of keep them at lower levels? We also had results from uh, regional REIT and they had a Q3 update over three months to the end of September. Again, they, they declared a dividend of 1.5p, uh, and that compares with 1.9p for the equivalent period uh, last year, and they're looking to pay a dividend of 6.4p for the financial year 2020, and that is expected to be covered by earnings. Probably the interesting development on regional REIT is that they're looking to focus solely on uh, UK office properties outside of the M25. So at the moment, they've got about 80% or so in offices but this idea of that it's going to be a pure play on non-London offices. Yes, well, that may or may not play well in the uh, in the post-viral economy if it has, does lead to any permanent changes in the way that people work and how they travel to work and so on. If that is indeed a permanent effect or just a, a temporary one, that might uh, play to their strength there. But at least they are very distinctive, as you say, in their approach. So what's been happening to the ratings in this sector? Uh, they've, been, they've been coming in a little bit, I think, have they not? Yeah, I think that's fair to say, though, that, that frankly, they're still on pretty wide discounts. So we talked about uh, Picton. I mean, they're trading on a 25% discount. We talked about regional REIT, similar kind of discount level, 35. I mean, the, the really, the big ones, uh, the largest kind of mainstream UK commercial property funds. I mean, BMO commercial property is still on a 41% discount. Uh, UK commercial property actually is a, rating's a lot stronger, uh, probably 9% or so. But yeah, wide discounts are still pretty commonplace across the uh, property sector. And then finally, we can talk about Urban Logistics REIT Shed, which have also had some results out. And I think you had a chance to have a chat, did you not, this week? Absolutely. Yeah, it's an interesting story, this one. So in terms of the results, they had interim results out to the end of September. Their NAV was up about 3% or so. So they had a total return of 5.5%. And the property portfolio is valued at $346 million. But if you think that back in 2016, when this uh, company came to market, when it IPO'd, they only raised £12 million. So it was a you know very small, it was probably off most people's radars. They have kind of built this up. And just to remind people, it kind of focuses on what they call a kind of mid-box logistics or last mile logistics. So these are kind of smaller, well, sheds, as, it's, as their ticker would suggest, probably about 200,000 square feet or so. But they're focused on kind of affordable regions um, they've got a, a quite a diversified client base in terms of third-party logistic companies and small, medium-sized enterprises and, and some of the larger names, so the supermarket chains and so on and so forth. But they put a lot of emphasis on, on asset management initiatives, so lease negotiations and extending the, the leases and, and looking for higher rents. 
But in terms of the performance record, it's been pretty strong. They target uh, between 10 and 15%. And, and even in this period, in terms of share price total returns, it was up at 22%. So there's a little bit of a rebound effect there. But a story, I think now, given that they are a larger size, probably one that's coming onto people's radars a bit more. Very good. Well, that's uh, a good note on which to finish. We've had a very uh, interesting week, as you said. been a very uh, buoyant week. And that certainly bodes well, maybe, for the market over the next week or two. Next year is another thing altogether. I'm happy to tell listeners that uh, if they were to rush out and buy the next edition of the Investment Trust Handbook, which is out in early December, did I mention that? I think I did. Uh, You'll be able to find out what Simon thinks about the year ahead, because I asked him a lot of questions and he's bravely put himself down to make some interesting suggestions about what might happen uh, next year. He, mind you, is only one of about 25 contributors to the handbook, and I very much hope that you might uh, be interested in having a look at it anyway. In the meantime, we'll look forward to uh, talking again next week, Simon. I doubt it will be quite as good as this week, but uh, let's hope that we continue to get some good news. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.